If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me this morning to the book of Joshua. Uh, The book of Joshua, this is our eighth week uh, studying this Old Testament book, this Old Testament narrative. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, two options. The uh, passage for this morning is printed in your insert, or there are some Bibles available on the back cart that you can use to follow along this morning. As you're turning there, I want to sing you a song. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. There's motions too. The mountains are His, the rivers are His, the stars are His handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. That's a song that I have sung. I could see some of my kids' eyes lighting up. It's a song that I've sung to my kids countless times when they were younger. Simple song. Simple truths. Our God is big. Our God is mighty. Do we really believe it? It's another question I posed to you this morning. Do you really believe it? I think our kids do. I think our kids do. As they're singing that, as they're putting up their arms, they believe it. Because they see their dad. They see their mom. But I think as we grow older and as life gets even messier, boy, it's hard to remember. It's hard in the nitty-gritty messiness of life to wonder, is he big enough? Is he strong enough? Is he able? And then when we even get that in our heads intellectually, how easily we forget it. How easily I forget it. Friends, from the very first verse of this book, I hope that we have had our focus where it needs to be, on the hero of this story. And that hero of the book of Joshua is not the one who bears the name Joshua, but it's the one who promised his presence to Joshua. And it's only through that presence and through that power could Joshua have the strength and the courage that he exhibits in the book. The hero of the story is the one who has generously handed out his mercy to those who seek his face. See, the hero of Joshua is Yahweh. It's the Lord, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And today, this morning, we see that hero again. And we press into him with truths that we've already looked at in parts in our study of this book. Our God is big. Our God is strong. Our God is not distant and removed from us. But he is willing to enter our world on your behalf, on my behalf. Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 15 is where we are this morning. If you are able, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Listen as I read. 
As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. As Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel." Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with their armies and encamped around Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, sand, still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and it did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. December 7th, 1941. You history buffs probably know exactly what happened on that day. President Eisenhower declared it a day that will live in infamy. It was, of course, the day that the Empire of Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. September 11th, 2001. We don't even have to add the year on that date to remember and to know what happened on that day. 
course, in every nation, in every time, we have days whose events will never be forgotten, whose events will never be repeated again. Just this past week, our president was in France, July 14th, 1789, Bastille Day. The attack on the Bastille that sparked the French Revolution. No doubt these are all memorable days. These are memorable moments in time. But none of them compare with this day. With the day that we're going to look at today in Joshua chapter 10. We don't know the exact date, but we can say with confidence because the Scriptures say that there will never be another day like it. Well, this morning as we reflect on this passage, on this next segment of this story, I want us to set our hearts on three simple truths. If you go from this place remembering nothing, remember these simple truths and then remember whatever you can hang on these truths. And the first one is this. Yahweh fights for his people. Yahweh fights for his people. Bottom line, the God that we find in this story, the God that we gather to worship and the God that we confess, the God who is our God and we are his people is the one who fights for us. With all the strength and with all the power necessary to accomplish his purposes in our lives. I don't think we need to linger here long because we've talked about this in some manner in previous weeks. We were reminded just a few weeks ago that this fight is ultimately the Lord's, that this entire conquest is the Lord's. And there I reminded us that this whole campaign of Israel that we have been examining and that we are just at the beginning of is not some unwarranted land grab. But this is ultimately, this is a campaign about judgment. Judgment against the rebellious people who should be seeking the one true God. The God who has revealed himself clearly all around them, and instead they live in idolatry and wickedness. But now here in Joshua chapter 10, we begin to see more of the specifics of that judgment. More graphically than when we saw the walls of of Jericho crumble at their base. You see, as we jump back into the story this morning, we remember that Israel is making headway into the promised land. They've, they've crossed the Jordan. They have taken out Jericho, took them two tries to take out Ai, but they took out Ai, and now they have an alliance with a formidable city of Gibeon. And they begun to cut a wedge in the land. And, and so the Amorite kings in the land of Canaan, they're noticing and they're getting nervous. 
And so the alliance that was hinted at at the beginning of chapter 9 is now taking shape among these other cities. So five Amorite kings, the leaders of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, decide whether out of revenge against Gibeon, who was supposed to be a part of this alliance, or whether out of a desire to test this alliance and to see really if it's going to hold up, they decide to go on the offensive. We're going to take out Gibeon. We're going to crush that city. And the first question is, as we're reading this text, of course, we read the whole thing, so we know the end of the matter, but the first question as we're reading this text is, will Israel stay true to its word? Will they defend Gibeon? You see, from a human standpoint, oh man, this is their chance. Just let Gibeon be. Maybe the kings of the Amorites will dispose of this city that Israel was tricked into making an alliance with. But remember, the oath that God's people swore to Gibeon was an oath in the name of Yahweh. And therefore, it was an oath that reflected His great name and His honor. And so verse 7, Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Joshua will stay true to his word. He will defend this pagan people. This pagan people that just duped him. This pagan people that revealed his Inability, his unwillingness to consult Yahweh when he doubted. I mean, perhaps this whole, this whole offensive by the Amorite alliance, perhaps this is the Lord's way of, of teaching Gibeon and teaching God's people a lesson. But then we read verse 8, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands, not a man of them shall stand before you. You see, these are words that echo the very first words that Yahweh gave Joshua back in chapter 1, verse 5. I will be with you. And just as it empowered them then to be strong and to be courageous, so it empowers and invigorates them now. Yahweh will stay true to his covenant. Yahweh will fight for his people. Despite all their failures, despite the failures of the recent past, their victory is assured. And all they have to do is walk by faith. See, this promise is what God's people needed to hear. And it's a promise that we need to hear in our context as well. We've been singing about the gospel. We've been rejoicing in Jesus. And this is a promise that ultimately comes to us through Jesus, through the greater Joshua who leads his people. Because ultimately, friends, God has fought for us most in sending Jesus. Jesus has fought for us. He's fought for you by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, is still fighting for you and fighting with you 
against your spiritual enemies, against your own nature, against the enemy who schemes and roars like a devouring lion. And that's where our hope begins this morning, with a God who fights for us because of the gospel. But let's get more specific than that first point. Let's consider in this passage the the incredible ways that Yahweh fought for his people. And that brings us to the second truth that I want us to consider, and it's this. God is big enough. God is big enough to bend nature. Do you hear that, kids? God is big enough to bend nature. We've all said something like this. Man, I wish this day wasn't over. Oh, I just need a few more hours in the day to get what I need to get done. Of course, one of the primary amazing things about Joshua chapter 10, for those of you who know the Scriptures, is the latter half of verse 13. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And we say, what? That can't happen. Did that really happen? Well, let's back up just a moment. Joshua, true to his word, comes to the aid of the Gibeonites, and he does that by way of a surprise attack in the early morning hours. It was an uphill journey for the Israelites to get to the city of Gibeon where this alliance was encamped, and so they came on the offensive, and indeed, it wasn't expected The Amorite alliance, they thought they were on the offensive. Now suddenly they're on the defensive and this attack has powerful effectiveness. The enemies of Israel are routed. They're on the run and Joshua doesn't want to lose this upper hand. And so in a moment of remarkable boldness, remember the man who just a chapter earlier refused to seek God's counsel when he was being tricked by the Gibeonites, suddenly cries out with remarkable boldness, I need more time. I need more time to finish this job. And the question is, did he get it? Did Joshua get more time? You see, one of the criticisms of this passage is is that to take what it seems to say at face value is impossible. It's impossible. I mean, I'm no scientist, but if the sun stops in the sky and the earth stops spinning on its axis, the consequences would be catastrophic and global around the planet. And so many have taken these words in Joshua chapter 10 as merely poetic. Just as Psalm 96 verse 12 says that the trees sing for joy. We know trees don't literally have mouths. They don't literally sing. That's a poetic way to say that they are rejoicing and praising God in their created beauty. So here in Joshua 10, the sun really didn't stop in the sky. But things just went better than expected quicker than even Joshua had hoped. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to go there. 
I don't think this is poetic. First of all, the writer of this book knows that what he reports here is going to be hard to believe. Because he seems to say it's not just poetic. But yes, indeed, this is against nature. And so what does he do? He cites a secondary source. He cites another witness, the book of Joshua, as evidence, further evidence of this same event. Now, the book of Joshua is an extra-biblical account that was circulating in the ancient world. We don't have a copy of it. It's not inspired by God, but apparently it contained historical accounts, poetic accounts of the deeds of ancient heroes. And we hear about it only one other time in Scripture in 2 Samuel 1 verse 18. David, David refers to it. And so the writer of Joshua is essentially saying, if you're having trouble believing me about the sun stopping in the sky, I'm not the only one reporting this event. This is amazing. But secondly, do we not think, because our kids believe this, do we not think that the creator and sustainer of all that is, the one who set the sun in the sky, who set its course in the heavens above couldn't halt that movement in such a way where it wouldn't have a domino effect around the globe affecting others in an adverse way. Of course he can. I don't know how he did it. You don't know how he did it. We don't need to know how he did it. No explanation, scientific, rational explanation, will, it will satisfy the skeptic's heart. We don't know how Jericho's walls suddenly crumbled at their base. We don't know scientifically how the cells broke down in the rocks of the wall. But we don't need to know. All we need to know is that we have a big God who is willing to bend the laws of nature in order to fight for his people. What we need to know is that Joshua, in boldness, pled for a miracle, and he got one. So why does that matter to you and I? Amazing, ancient story. But here we are, God's people are no longer bound to one ethnic nation. We are no bound, we're no longer bound to, to geography. We don't have a clearly defined earthly enemy. But the God of Joshua 10 hasn't changed. This is not a different God. This is the same God. This is your God. This is my God. And brothers and sisters, our God is a God of miracles. Joshua 10, this God is the God of hope in insurmountable obstacles. Do we believe in the ordinary means that God communicates grace with his people, that God deals with his people? Do we pray that those very ordinary, common means would have powerful effect on our lives and on the lives of our children? Yes, we do. I proclaimed that just a few weeks ago from this pulpit. But do we believe 
in extraordinary means? Do we believe in unexplainable, unscientific, immediate and conclusive answers to prayer? Absolutely. And so we rejoice this morning that we serve a God that doesn't just fight for his people, but he'll do whatever means he needs to do to accomplish his purposes. This is hope. This is hope in the midst of that cancer diagnosis. Bend the physiology of the human body. Stump the doctors. Stump the scientists. Do it, Lord, that only you get the glory. This is hope in the midst of that difficult relationship. That heart that is bent and broken and wounded, turn that heart around, Lord. This is hope in the midst of that addiction. Bend my heart. Bend my urges. Bend those physiological feelings and those those physical urges and make me clean. God is willing to fight for his people and to bend nature to do it. And we may not know God's will in every matter. And so as we even pray in boldness, we must be willing to accept the answer. But Joshua 10 reminds us that we can be confident that God is not removed from his people, that he is involved, that he is willing to enter in, that his glory might be displayed. And so, child of God, pray boldly. Pray boldly. Don't worry about the laws of nature. Pray boldly. Our God can do it. Well, there's one last truth that I want us to look at this morning briefly, and it's this. Our God is not only big enough to bend nature, but He's strong enough to silence your enemies. Your God is strong enough to silence your enemies. Let me explain what I mean. Take away the distance. You know, we sit here in this nice gym, showered, polished up, but take away the distance between you hearing this story read to you this morning and the actual darkness of that early morning outside of Gibeon. If you really enter into that story, this account, this account is R-rated. This is an R-rated scene. Joshua and his fighters, they roll into the enemy's camp under the cover of darkness. I would imagine that it wouldn't take too many swings of the sword to awaken others amidst shouts and screams of terror. Clearly the enemy, clearly the Amorites are confused and they're scared. And as they run from the swords of the Israelites... Suddenly, precision strike hailstones come from the sky and begin to mow them down from above. Chunks of ice meeting flesh 
and bone. Make no mistake how this scene comes about. Verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic. Verse 11, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven. More died because of the hailstones than the sword. See, the writer of Joshua 10 wants us to be sure that this was the Lord's fight. This was the Lord bending nature. This was the Lord silencing the enemies of his people. Ultimately, his enemies. And so how does this, how does this picture of God, this warrior God, how does that hit you? We've wrestled with this some in previous weeks. We will continue to wrestle with it in weeks to come. It seems uncharacteristic to our modern minds, doesn't it? It seems too, too violent. We forget that this is a holy God who has perfect, white-hot wrath against sin and against wickedness. And as we sit here this morning, we sometimes forget that this God of Joshua 10 is not a different God than the God that we worship and adore through Jesus this morning. No, Yahweh of the Old Testament is the same God as Jesus of the New Testament, the one who relents in mercy to those who cry out to Him, but who shows justice, perfect justice against sin. You see, the Amorite alliance here in Joshua 10, they, they don't want mercy. They want power. They want to be gods unto themselves. They want to crush those who honor Yahweh. They want autonomy. They want war. And so Yahweh shows how he deals swiftly and decisively with his enemies. He is big enough. He is strong enough. And he is engaged enough. And friends, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we need a God who is tough on our enemies. We need a Jesus who is strong enough to silence our enemies. I read a quote this week as I was studying, which I thought was, was interesting, maybe, maybe too bluntly to the point. The writer says, the popular image of Jesus is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. Such a Jesus can hardly steal the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. No mild or soft Jesus can give his people hope. Brothers and sisters, Joshua 10 proclaims to us this morning that we, yes, we have a tender Jesus, a loving Jesus. But he's not a mild or soft Jesus. 
He's strong enough to deal with our enemies. He's big enough. So my encouragement to you this morning, the Scripture's encouragement to you this morning is to let your, taking off this quote, let your soul be steeled. S-T-E-E-L-E-D. Let your soul be steeled by a God who fights for you. A God who will bend nature if he has to on your behalf. Especially if that means silencing your enemies. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words of encouragement and might and power from Joshua 10. Father, we thank you for the clear picture they give us of of your character, of your nature, of your dealings, not just with your Old Testament people, but with us who sit here together from many nations and tongues and languages and yet come through one Savior and one Lord, through Jesus, the one you've sent. O Holy Spirit, take these truths and impress them upon our hearts that they might find deep root. And I pray once again that anything that I've said that is not helpful, that is contrary to your design, that you would strike it from the memory of your people and that you would take that which is true and embed it deep in our hearts, in our lives, we pray. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen.